Okay, uh, let's open up this morning. I want to jump right in. If, uh, if you're lost or you're a little confused where we're starting, all these messages are online. I encourage you to go back. I don't want to take time to review this morning. I'd like to get through the end of chapter 17, okay? We finished last time at chapter 17, verse 9. Here in chapter 17 and 18 of Revelation, we see a pause. We're already at the end, narratively speaking, or chronologically speaking, we're at the, we're, we've been brought up to the point of the seventh vial being of ju- God's judgment, the seventh bowl of His wrath being poured out upon the world just prior to the heavens opening, what was just described in that song, and Christ coming down. We're going to see that in chapter 19, the marriage supper of the Lamb, the bride is made ready, she's been whisked away to the marriage chamber, just like in a Jewish wedding, and now it's time to proclaim the marriage to the public. And the heavens open up and Christ returns. He doesn't come to take sides. He comes to take over. And uh, his saints come with him. But prior to this, there's a pause in the chronology. And we have another one of those parentheses that kind of zooms out. Zooms out and gives us an overall picture of what God's doing behind the scenes. Or how things got to the point they are. And in chapter 17 and 18, we see a glorious thing. We see... The judgment of this world system in which we live in bondage. We think we're free here, but like Kanye West said, I mean, I kind of think he's an idiot, but uh, don't know about having rappers like that in the White House. But what he, well, he spoke the truth when he said that the uh, 13th Amendment in the Constitution didn't get rid of slavery. You only think it did. We're enslaved to a world system. It's called Babylon, and that world system has a religious element, a demonic religious element, a false religious element that props up a commercial or an economic element or a political element. They work, they're one and the same. You know, you can just take Rome, the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire birthed the religious monstrosity that is Roman Catholicism, which in turn will birth a revival of the political Roman Empire at the end of time. They work hand in hand. It's a corrupt system that goes back to the days of Nimrod, goes back to the days after the flood when men unified in their desire to be as God. Satan has been able to appeal to that side of human nature that won him a victory in the Garden of Eden ever since the beginning of time. You shall be as gods. And that's what propels this world system. But this system is going to fall. Babylon has fallen. And it's spoken of in the past tense as if it's as good as done. So rest assured, my friends, all that perplexes us today will be judged. It'll fall. Both the religious and the commercial elements. Chapter 17 is Mystery Babylon. You can't get these confused. Mystery Babylon versus Babylon in chapter 18. So we've been talking about the fall of the religious whore, the religious element that's used to propel Antichrist into power. We see a scarlet-colored beast here with seven heads and ten horns. Just, and we, we see this seven heads, ten horns combination throughout Scripture in different places, Daniel and Revelation. The difference between the beast here in chapter 17 and what we've already seen revealed in chapter 13, the beast that comes out of the sea, this is the puppy form. He's a puppy. You know, there's a lot of 
animals in the animal kingdom that aren't so beautiful. They're, they're singular. They're, they have a single color when they're a puppy or a, or, or, or a pup. And when they become full grown, they're monkey colored and very different looking than when they were a pup. This is the beast as a pup. And so what is being revealed to John here is how this beast that takes over the world system comes to power. And he's actually aided to power by a religious institution, I believe, that claims that there's a God and claims that there's a Messiah and his name is Jesus. Claims that he died on a cross. They don't talk so much about his resurrection. But there's a religious element that propels him to power. And like the wicked characteristically do when they get what they want, they eat their own. It's like in the French Revolution, the people that wanted to overthrow the government and you know, it was kind of like today about on, a, on an accusation you could be convicted to the guillotine, to the guillotine. And the people throwing about the accusations in the beginning ended up on the guillotines themselves. It's the way it works. So that's what we have here. And we've been talking a little bit about this mystery Babylon. I believe you have a, a governmental element here, the revival of imperial government, which passed away with the Roman Empire. I believe you have an individual element here. I think you have the Antichrist who has been here before and now he's back. Okay? We talked about connections there to the son of perdition. You've got a tribulational element here where you have a man that rises to power, he's assassinated, and then he comes back to life and all the world follows him. Prophecy in the Old Testament and in the New Testament as well is not, it's multi-layered. And though we may be confounded by details, rest assured that when all is said and done, God will have done exactly what he said he was going to do to the letter, literally. And even though the details can't be understood now, it will be understood when it's done. And it may not look anything like we think it's going to look like, but when it's fulfilled, God will have kept his word to the letter. We're at chapter 17, verse 9. We've talked about the mother whore, drunk with the blood of the saints and martyrs of Jesus. It's interesting to see what she's drunk with. And then you get to chapter 18, and it's not the saints and martyrs of Jesus. It's the saints, it's the martyrs of all time. So there's some differences between chapter 17 and 18, but it's definitely a one-world system that's going to fall, that's been around for a long time. But we're in chapter 17, verse 9. We've talked about... The five aspects of this religious whore's judgment. This is the judgment of the whore. Okay? We're going to see the judgment of the beast kingdom in chapter 18. But this is the judgment of the whore that helps propel the beast into power. She's introduced in the first two verses. She's described in verses 3 through 6. We talked about the purple and scarlet colors. We talked about the name Mystery Babylon. This is Mystery Babylon. It's not a literal city here it's obvious by her name okay when the bible gives a symbol it's obvious and we need to let the bible interpret what the symbol means and that's exactly what happens here we in verses 7 through 15 it's the, the focus is on her involvement with the beast her involvement with the beast and we got down to verse 9 here is the mind which has wisdom last time i spoke about how this is a clear indication that we need to have discernment when we read and study God's Word, there's the warning here. Have discernment. Pay attention to details. So often we forget or to do that and we miss glorious truths that God is trying to reveal. 
You know, we'll, we'll be studying a book and we won't let John speak for himself before we got to go tramps around elsewhere in the Scriptures. We need to let Scripture interpret Scripture, but not to the point where we don't let Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John speak for themselves. And I gave you some examples of that. You know, we talk about, we look at the story of the rich young ruler there in Luke and how, you know, Jesus said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And then Jesus' disciples were like, well, man, how can anybody be saved? And Jesus said, with man, that's impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And we, we see that and we rejoice, but we never, we, we fail to connect that in the next chapter, Jesus is walking out of Jericho, and there's a rich man with a short man syndrome sitting up in a sycamore tree that gets gloriously saved. Not only did Jesus say God could do the impossible, but he showed it in the very next chapter. I mean, I, that encourages me. Those are those little details we need to pay attention to. When Jesus stood up in the synagogue and, and, talked to, and, and, and quoted a prophecy from Isaiah about Messiah and says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your ears, well, it's important to see that Jesus stopped in the middle of the sentence and he did it for a reason. Because the whole prophecy wasn't fulfilled that day. He, the days of the vengeance of our God was reserved for another time. The details are important. Here is the mind that has wisdom. We need discernment. I don't have all the answers about these details here. I have an opinion of what I believe is going on. But I have the faith to know that when all is said and done, God will have fulfilled His word to the letter. Here is the mind that has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. We talked about this a bit. You can't ignore the historical context of Scripture. You can't ignore the time period in which John is writing and what would have made sense in his day. You can't ignore those things. Scriptures ha scripture has to be interpreted in its context. People get in trouble when they rip it out of context. Half of that garbage on Buddy Fisher's sign last night is a prime example of Scripture taken out of context. You know, that old hymn we just sang talked about Christ, not just our sin in part, but the whole was nailed to a cross. Not in part. If sin is only what we do and not what we are, then it was only nailed in part. And if it was just, if it was the whole and not the part, how could we lose it? If Christ nailed our sin to a cross in whole, how could, how could what he purchased for us be lost? Amen. But you see, these people, they react. They react to the world. Just because a bunch of false converts prayed a prayer and thought they were saved and didn't went, went and live for the world, they say, well, you must be able to lose your salvation. You can't change biblical doctrine just because people misapply the Scripture. But our sin, not in part, but the whole. And I'm going to tell you, my friends, if we can lose what Christ purchased for us, we have nothing better than the religions of this world as an answer for people. We've got nothing better. We may as well say they're all the same because we've got nothing better to offer them. The details here, important. Discernment, wisdom needed. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. In, in, his, in history, it's undeniable that at the time John wrote the book of Revelation, Rome was known throughout the world as the city that sits on seven hills. That's what it was known as. 
Well, there were more, you know, the city grew and there were more than seven hills or seven mountains. And it was known as the city of seven hills. Just like the city of Kansas Kansas City is associated with the state of Missouri, even though it spills over the river into Kansas. Okay, you say, well, those aren't mountains that Rome sits upon. Those are small little hills. Well, here in Catawba County, we have five little rises they call mountains. Baker's Mountain, Anderson Mountain, Lynn Mountain, Brindle Mountain, Hog Hill. They're not very high. They're not even 1,000 feet. This is 700 feet or something, but it's a mountain. Elevation's not everything. In Greek, the word here means a, a rise or a hill. And usually a high mountain is distinguished with a word that translates lofty or high. When it says Jesus took James, Peter, and John up to a high mountain to pray and then he was transfigured before him, we know it's not the little Catholic shrine on top of the little hill called Mount Tabor in the Megiddo Valley. He went to a high mountain. Well, Keovio, it's Mount Hermon. It's got snow on it all year long. Those guys didn't go for a Sunday stroll. They, they took a hike to the top of a high mountain. And Jesus was transfigured in such a way that only James and John and Peter saw it and not all the villages below. But the seven heads are seven mountains. This whore is, is, a, is a pond seated upon seven mountains. And we learn at the end of chapter 17 that she's a great city, a great city upon seven mountains. There has to be a connection to Rome here. There's no way to deny that. There has to be a connection to Rome and Roman Catholicism. If if history means anything, there has to be. You know, it says, well, those are little hills that Rome sits upon. In Psalm 125, it talks about as the mountains that surround Jerusalem. Those aren't mountains. They're little hills. Elevation's not everything, my friends. There's a little bump in the, in, the, in the topography up here on the way to Burke County, or in Burke County, I think, called Hildebrand Mountain. It's just a little bump. But go park your car at the radio tower there and start up through the woods. No trail to get to the top of it. And I guarantee you at the top, you'll be thinking this is a mountain. Start at Black Mountain Campground at the bottom of Mount Mitchell and walk the five miles to the summit. Now, you can drive to the summit, but walk to the five miles to the summit and, and tell me it's not a mountain. I can get to the summit of fourteen or 15,000 foot peaks in Peru that are a lot easier than walking from the base of Mount Mitchell. So elevation's not everything. Rome sits upon seven hills. It sits upon seven mountains. There's, no, there's no, de- definitely no contradiction there. In the Bible, the word mountain is a common symbol for a kingdom. We've got to remember that as well. David referred to the kingdom God had given him on a throne in Jerusalem as my mountain at the dedication of his house. He talked about the mountain God had given me. In Jeremiah, the prophet refers to Babylon as a destroying mountain, the kingdom that would come and take over. In Daniel's vision... The kingdom of Messiah is a stone cut without hands that becomes a mighty mountain. Isaiah speaks of the mountain of the Lord in terms of the millennial kingdom. So a mountain is a common biblical symbol for a kingdom. So we have a a whore here that sits upon seven mountains. Okay, Rome was the city known to sit upon seven hills. But mountains are also biblical symbols for kingdom. I think we have a dual meaning here. 
I think what we have is a religious whore that's somehow tied to Rome, but she's also tied to imperial kingdoms throughout history, worldwide imperial kingdoms. And there's only been seven. It's very interesting when you look at history. And there's one thing that every one of these imperial kingdoms have in common. Every one of them were used by the devil to try to eradicate Israel in some form or another. So I think you have a lot of things going on here that are worth considering. There was a man named Victorinus in the early church. He's known as writing the first commentary on the book of Revelation. And he was very, very clear at the time when Rome was around that the reference here is to the city of Rome. The city of seven hills. I find that's interesting. But I, I believe there's a relationship that Rome has not just to itself but all the kingdoms that preceded it. That world system. The world system didn't start with Rome. It didn't start with Babylon in, in, in Daniel's day. It started with Cain. It's, it resurrected after the flood. Cain and his people went and built cities. And after that was destroyed, what's the first thing the men, men, men of the time tried to do when they grew in number? They tried to build a city that reached to heaven. Goes all the way back. We think we, we know everything. We think we're smarter than everybody that went before us because we've got an iPhone. Give me a break. There's no doubt historically that Rome... The, the, Rome, the kingdom of Rome, the, Daniel's fourth Gentile kingdom, absorbed the lands of all the previous imperial kingdoms. That's historically true. So these historical facts that would have been obvious to John in his day can't be ignored. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. There's a connection to Rome. The Roman Catholic Church is not the spirit of Christ. It's the spirit of Antichrist. And it has a part to play in the last days, even though much of the power she once wielded doesn't seem to be there. Make no mistake, she's got a lot of power. She has a lot of power on the United States Supreme Court. Are you aware that most of those justices, including the ones sitting there that just finally got in, are Catholics? If our founding fathers knew how many Catholics are in positions of power in this country, they would roll over in their grave because they didn't want that. Back in the colonial days, when, when the, the, the colonists began to stand up against the British, you know, we learn about the Tea Act and the different stamp acts and the taxes that made everybody upset and the Boston Tea Party and everything, taxation without representation. But what they won't talk about in the history books is what really ticked off the colonists it was the Quebec Act. The Quebec Act was an agreement with the French, the French in Canada that would allow the Catholic French to settle the Ohio River Valley. And the, and the colonists were infuriated by this attempt of the British government to use the French Catholics to hem them in on the east side of the Appalachian Mountains. They had fled Mother Whore, the Roman Catholic Church, and now the British government was using it as a pawn to try to control them across the ocean. And the colonists said, that's enough. That's enough. And then men of valor stood up to an oppressive regime and an oppressive government and were willing to die for it. You know, for now, we fight at the ballot box. For now, we fight at the ballot box. For now, I'm a voter. 
I'm an angry voter. But if the Lord tarries, we must be minute men. Are we going to fight this tyranny? I'm willing to fight and die for it. I'm willing to kill for it if I have to, to protect the innocent, to protect our women. Men, will we fight and spill our blood for our women? Last night, there were women holding their men back. These cowards that wanted to get in our face and fight us would let their, put their women between us and them. The Lord tarries. Are we willing to stop being voters and start being Minutemen? I tried to talk to those police on the street corner last night and thank them for their service and talk about how that blue line, we support the police. I know there's a lot of corrupt out there, but that blue line is a thin line of defense. And then the guy got a little bit prideful and wanted, wanted to act like that was such a great line of defense. And then I told him, I said, when that line crumbles, you're going to unleash a furious animal. Because when you won't do your job, we will. And we won't restrain ourselves. It's the truth. But it was that Catholicism being allowed to come in that finally lit the fuse. And we know where history went from them. God birthed the nation that was used of Him to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. There's no question about that. He birthed the nation that would be a refuge to the persecuted Christians, a refuge to Israel. This has never been a place where the Jew, outside of a few Catholic kids at schools calling, picking on kids, or outside some bullying or isolated incidents, largely this country has been a place that's been a friend to the Jewish people. And I think God blesses a nation for that. Genesis 12 is clear. And we've sent the... The gospel into the world. We've printed Bibles. We've sent missionaries. But those days are over. The Philadelphia church period is over. America's chief export today is not technology. It's not Apple. It's iniquity. Amen. And the, the, earth, the nations of this planet watch what we do. You want to know why Tel Aviv is one of the, uh, the, the largest homosexual cities in the world? You want to know why there's so much wickedness in Israel today? Because they watch American TV. Because they look at us and they follow us. Even in some of the darkest and the most wicked, idolatry-laden countries in this earth, they wouldn't parade in the streets some of the junk that happens here. There's a reason why the Muslims hate this country and call it the great Satan. They hate the stuff that's promoted here. A lot of them do the same things in secret behind closed door, but they're not parading it in the streets. I think the country in the world that has some of the most, the most prevalent child or internet pornography downloads, I think is Pakistan, you know, the Muslim country where everybody's so holier than now, they wouldn't dare look at that, but they are. I think Osama had, had porn on his computer when those soldiers broke in the room, put a bullet between his eyes. Looking at porn one second, looking at the flame the next. But we're a chief export of iniquity. And uh, it's Rome, though, that set off those colonists. She wields a lot of power, has in history, still does today. We, we do well not to ignore it. But verse 10, and there are seven kings. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth, and there are seven kings. So there's obviously a tide of kingdoms. This isn't only Rome. I think you cannot deny the significance of Rome, especially when you get to verse 18. But it's also a reference to seven kingdoms. We talked about this at one point when we looked at the dragon in chapter 12, Satan. He's got seven heads and ten horns. 
the beast, the Antichrist in, in chapter 13, he's got seven heads and ten horns. Daniel's fourth Gentile kingdom's got ten horns and ten toes. Here we've got the seven heads and ten horns. I think we've got the puppy form of the beast. But there are seven kingdoms that prop this religious whore up. And there are seven kings. Five are fallen, one is, and the other is not yet come. And when he cometh, he must continue a short space. The religious whore is somehow connected to Rome. She sits upon seven mountains, just like the city of Rome does physically. But Rome and what she represents, the Roman Catholic Church, also sits upon the foundation of seven kings, seven kingdoms. And in John's day, he sees five of those kingdoms are fallen. They're gone. One of them yet is... And there's another that still has to come, future from John's perspective. And when it comes, unlike all the rest, it will only continue for a short time. Five are fallen. One is. One kingdom is not yet come. And we'll see that it's associated with ten horns. And then the eighth kingdom is the beast himself, the full-grown monster we see in Revelation chapter 13. Now, you've got these people out here that have some weird theology. You think what you saw on that sign last night was weird. You've got guys, what's even weirder is guys that preach a straight line biblical gospel. No question about that. The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Eternal security. But when they get into prophetic stuff, they go way off the deep end. These reformers. You know, a lot of these reformed believers, they don't even know what that word means. Okay? They don't even use Reformation Bibles. I don't know how you call yourself a reformer if you're not using a King James Bible because the ESV is not a Reformation Bible. It's just not. It has no historical tie to the Reformation. It comes from that, that line of text that the Catholic Church birthed. But there are those that are called preterists, and there's a lot of them out here. They believe that everything in Revelation has already taken place and that... Most of these prophecies were fulfilled in A.D. 70 when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem. They look at prophecies in Daniel, like Daniel's 70 weeks, and what we see very clearly as a reference to Antichrist, they say it's talking about Christ. They tend to be very anti-Semitic. Anti-Semitism and Reformed theology in terms of prophecy and eschatology go hand in hand. They just do. But you got preterists that would say, ah, this is a reference to seven Roman emperors that would come after John's day. When you go and look at history, it's it's, it's more difficult to find historically seven emperors following him that would fit these details. It's more difficult to find that than it is to find an unbroken line of popes that go back to Peter that the Catholic Church claims. Well, it's seven forms of Roman government. I've heard them say, well, there's seven different types of government that the Roman Empire had. Laugh out loud. You can't reconcile this with the details of this revelation from history if 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 your life depended upon it. Foolishness. Be careful of those that take prophecy and twist it all around and they ignore the Old Testament and they somehow think that the New Testament replaces the Old Testament or that the church has replaced Israel. 
Beware of those people. I don't care if they are preaching the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Praise God for that. But don't fraternize with them. You'll get into trouble. And if you go far enough down that road, what seems to be a biblical gospel isn't anymore. Be careful. Historically speaking, there have been successive imperial world empires in history influenced by a false religious system that has a lot of things in common with what Roman Catholicism is today. And this, these successive imperial world empires in history not only persecuted Israel or were used by God to judge Israel, they have given birth to the final manifestation of this worldwide religious system, which I believe is Roman Catholicism, which in turn ushers in the final manifestation of the imperial world power. And that's the beast himself. In Daniel chapter 2 and chapter 7, Daniel sees four Gentile kingdoms that would arise. One was in power in his day. Four imperial kingdoms that literally controlled civilized, the civilized earth. In his day, it was Babylon, the head of gold, the first beast. After Babylon would arise the Medes and the Persians. The arms and the breast of silver. The second beast. Then would come the Greeks. The belly and the thighs of brass. The third beast. And after the Greeks would come that terrible fourth beast that he couldn't even describe. The feet, the legs and feet of iron and iron mixed with clay and the toes. Rome. Daniel saw four Gentile kingdoms that would arise. And it's amazing prophecy that was literally fulfilled. And we can look back and see it. But Daniel was speaking in terms of Israel's future history. From the point Daniel was given prophecy, he was told what God's plan and purpose for Israel would be. And it would involve four Gentile world kingdoms. And at the end of that fourth kingdom, Messiah would set up a kingdom and right all that was made wrong. We need to remember that Daniel looked into the future from his day as relates to God's plan for Israel. From his day moving forward, there would be four imperial kingdoms. John, however, and it's characteristic in terms of the different nuances between Daniel and Revelation, the prophecies don't contradict. They pair up nicely. But Daniel's focus is Israel. John's focus is the whole world. Just like when you read the Gospels. They don't contradict themselves. Each author has a different, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, a different focus on the aspect of Christ's life. John focuses more on Jesus' Jerusalem ministry. The other writers are looking at what he was doing in Galilee. And there's overlap there. You know, people tend to think things are the same. Remember we looked at the Olivet Discourse about the old day, the last days? In Matthew chapter 24... Where Jesus gives one sign, he's talking to his disciples privately on the Mount of Olives. But in Luke 21, where he gives another sign, he's in the temple, <clears throat> fulfilling the prophecy of Haggai 2, warning the people, giving them another sign. They weren't, he wasn't even on the Mount of Olives. But people don't read the details. But John's looking at the whole panorama of history. In Daniel's day, two of these Gentile kingdoms had already come and gone. 
two of these worldwide imperial kingdoms that oppressed Israel were come and gone and were irrelevant to the purpose of his prophecy. Then we get to Revelation 17, and what it's doing is it's expanding upon what Daniel's already prophesied. What Daniel saw as one kingdom, as, as, uh, uh, as refers to Israel, John splits it in two. And the reason why it's split in two, when you got a, when you got a, when you got a, a person, we got a little space here between the legs, right? That Roman kingdom, that Roman Gentile kingdom was spoken of as two legs and there's a space here. Well, that space is the church age. Something that was irrelevant to Daniel's prophecy because that was talking about Israel. Remember when Messiah was cut off and the, the Bible said that after a certain number of years, which was fulfilled literally, Christ would be recognized as Messiah. And from the beginning of that prophecy till uh, uh, Palm Sunday, A.D. 30, God's prophetic clock for Israel was ticking. And then it paused. It's like an atomic clock that just stops. It stopped. The one time in Christ's life when the people recognized him as Messiah was when he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. And how quickly they changed their mind. But the prophetic clock with Israel stopped. And then, then Daniel said two things would happen. Messiah would be cut off. He was cut off on Passover that week. And the people of the prince that would come would destroy Jerusalem. Well, that happened 40 years later in 70 A.D. And then it talks about the Jews being scattered unto the end of the war. Desolations are determined. And right there in that phrase, you have that, that whole church age. God's prophetic clock for Israel doesn't start ticking again until Antichrist signs a treaty with her. It's paused. God's doing a special thing right now, raising up the church. The, church was, the purpose of the church is to provoke Israel. And to fulfill the prophecies that Messiah would... It was an easy thing for Messiah to be a light to Israel or to save her, but he would be a light to the Gentiles as well. And so that prophetic clock is paused, and that's why Daniel's focused on one thing. John's zooming out with the church age in view, and that fourth Gentile kingdom has two phases. Rome, church age, Rome revived. And so Revelation 17 is only expanding upon Daniel 2 and 7. Upon seven great imperial powers, this harlot rides and is carried, not on one of them or some of them, but upon all of them. What John is seeing here is a religious whore that's riding a beast with seven heads. And at this point, she's riding in such a way, that word carry, she's controlling, she's a horse master. She's riding it, she's controlling it. But then we see it turns on her. It takes control. These powers upon which she rides are lovers, servants, and defenders of a false religious system. If you look back at these Gentile kingdoms, that's what they were. There's de demons and devils behind every worldly kingdom. Daniel was praying and the angel that came to him was hindered because the king of Persia hindered him. There's a spiritual realm that Satan has convinced everyone doesn't exist. That's his great victory. Satan's the father of pride, but he's not so reactionary that he can't lay aside a pride aside a little bit, and he's perfectly fine with people denying his existence. If he can deceive them in the end. 
Through all of these imperial kingdoms, false, the false religious system has endured. Had it not been for that, it would have died. But it endured and rose in and out of dormancy to guide world affairs. There has been a false religious system going back to Bible that has guided world affairs. In and out of dormancy, power kind of rises up and down like a, like a, like a meter uh, tracking a man's heartbeat. But it's always been there. If you look at Roman Catholicism and what it teaches, it's Babylonian paganism back to the days of Nimrod with Christian words and Christian terminology. It's amazing. We talked about the Adelan priest kings and how that stuff was brought up out of Babylon and came into Rome and all of that mess. Look, I'll put it simply. In the days of the New Testament, when Paul made his journey to Rome, they were burning incense to Venus and Aphrodite and these goddesses. Wasn't 300 years later with Constantine, the statue stayed. They were burning incense to Venus, then they started burning it to Mary, and they didn't even change the statues. All the saints there, that, that was the Roman pantheon of gods, they just changed the names. It was a political move. True believers were never part of that stuff. You see, after Constantine came to power, the, the real believers had two problems. They were persecuted by the secular governments of the world. And then they got another enemy, the institutional church. Look, the Roman Catholic Church has butchered more Bible-believing Christians in history than Islam could ever think about. Islam's killed more Muslims than it has Christians. But Roman Catholicism was responsible for the obliteration of entire communities of people because they would not submit to what she says was authority. Those that translated and disseminated the scriptures slaughtered. Not just in the Middle Ages, going all the way back, the stuff the history books won't tell you about. An enemy of the truth. Babylonian paganism back to Nimrod. That unbroken line of this false religious system is far more sure than what the papal church claims is an unbroken line of popes back to Peter. That's foolishness. Peter wasn't even in Rome. He was in Babylon. Babylon, it's funny because to make their argument, they condemn themselves. Because they say, the Catholics will say, well, that Babylon there, that's a, a code word for Rome. Rome is Babylon. Well, of course you are. You just admitted it. But Peter was the apostle to the Jews. He was in Babylon because there was a sizable community of Jews that stayed there. And he was doing what Christ commissioned him to do. He wasn't in Rome. Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. It's interesting to note that Paul commissioned and sent to the Gentiles never went to the Gentiles and forgot about the Jews. He always looked for an opportunity. And when he finally made it to Rome... The people he talked to first were the Jews. I think there's a lesson in that for us as believers. There's a lesson. That's why God's led us to make, it, make an effort to reach Jewish people. If it weren't for the Jews, we wouldn't have the Word of God. We wouldn't have the Christ of God. And we wouldn't have the apostles and prophets. We wouldn't have the first pastors and the first missionaries and the first local New Testament churches. To carry out the Great Commission is to remember these. In some way. doesn't mean that's what you're called to do. But remember them. Don't the brethren of our Lord at least deserve to hear the truth? I don't care what they've done in history. When Jesus says in Matthew 25, and as much as you've done it to one of these, the least of my brethren, 
He's talking to nations, not individuals, when he's sitting on his millennial throne on earth, not in heaven. And the sheep and the goats are those nations that were compassionate to his brethren and dependent upon that determines whether they enter into his kingdom. That's the king of the world sitting on his throne judging nations that have survived this madness based upon how they handled the Jews who will be persecuted terribly by Antichrist. And those nations that tried to help his brethren, that's not the church. Church is with him in heaven. They'll get to enter into the kingdom. That doesn't mean they're saved, but they'll get to enter in. You know, that, those nations will rebel at some point. It says in, in the Old Testament that every nation will bring up offerings to Jerusalem during the, the millennial kingdom, and those that don't, God's going to rain plagues on them, send famines to them. Man, I'm getting off base here a little bit. I'm kind of wobbling a little bit. Roman Catholicism is unique, though, because it, it doesn't just preach a false god. It, Islam's got a false god. Uh, Buddhism's got false gods. Hinduism's got 400 million false gods. But the dangerous thing about Roman Catholicism is it preaches a false god and a false messiah. You know, Islam denies that God can have a son. Rabbinic Judaism denies that. I think that's incredible because who was Adam's father? If God can't have a son, who was Adam's father? That's a simple way to put that to silence. But uh, the Messiah is God's son. That's so clear in the, in the Old Testament. I don't know how the rabbis get around that. But they do because rabbinic Judaism was birthed in hell, the same place where this Roman Catholic horror was birthed. Rabbinic Judaism is not biblical Judaism. It's just not. But the Catholic Church recognizes Jesus in name and, and speaks of his death, burial, and resurrection but they teach a false God and a false Messiah. And this false Messiah that they propped up, Catholic Jesus, it's going to usher in a false Messiah that Israel herself will be duped into believing. Jesus said, I came in my Father's name and you didn't believe me, but one day another will come in his own name. And you'll, you'll believe him. Jesus preached about Antichrist. And... The church, the Roman Catholic Church, retains so much power today. I mean, I'm not trying to say the whore is this or is that, but it's connected. There, there's no way historically to deny that. She has much say-so today over the city of Jerusalem. There are places down there where in Jerusalem, because the Catholics own land, the people living there can't do basic projects to provide for the the, uh, uh, the water and the electricity and other things, the uh, uh, infrastructure there in the city. She wields a lot of power in Israel even today. And the Pope has wanted to put his throne there for a long, long time. He's wanted his throne in Jerusalem for a long time. That's why Islam was created. Islam is a, is a, is a bastard child of the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholics wanted to get Israel and Ju Jerusalem back from the Jews. And so they, they found this, this, uh, this, this child or this, this uh, couple in the desert and raised him up to make him believe he was some sort of prophet. And they created a monster hoping that they could use this army to get back the Holy Land. 
Well, Muhammad rose up to power. He produced a bastard child. And yeah, they went and took the Holy Land back. But then these, these, uh, these Arabian uh, uh, monsters betrayed, bit the hand that fed them and said, wait a minute, we're not giving it back to you. It's ours now, double cross. The wicked eating the wicked. So Rome's even tied to Islam. She produced it. Not going to get into all that detail here. There's an interesting album. There's a, a, a band I like to listen to out of England called Dissident Prophet. Got a line in a song. It says, The Pope says that all roads must lead to Rome and he'd like to make Jerusalem a second home. They'd like to build a temple right beside the dome. It's the sign of the times. The time of the signs. Five are fallen. One is and the other is not yet come. It's very easy to look at history. What are the five that are fallen? If you look at imperial world kingdoms, you have Babylon, which started with Nimrod at Babel. The first imperial kingdom didn't last very long, but it resurrected again under Nabonidus and his son Nebuchadnezzar. Babylon, Egypt, Assyria, the Persians, the Medo-Persians, and the Greeks. In John's day, those five imperial kingdoms had risen and fallen. They were gone. Can't, can't make that argument about any other in history. They were all guided and influenced by the false religious system of the harlot. Then John says, and one is. Well, what was the imperial kingdom in power when John wrote? It was Rome. Rome that sanctioned the crucifixion of Christ that was responsible for the martyrdom of the apostles that imprisoned John on the Isle of Patmos. Rome, ancient Rome, is. Now remember, Daniel saw the Gentile kingdom that is Rome as two legs, two feet, two phases, ancient and revised. John speaks of the one that is as ancient Rome. And then he says, one is not yet come. This is the revived or revised Roman Empire. Why is John seeing two in, in Daniel 1 as regards the harlot? Well, Daniel's talking about Israel. Between the first and second phase of the Roman Empire is the church age. That doesn't concern Israel. Oh, the church is made up of Jews and Gentiles. There's always a Jewish remnant. There were 14 followers of Yeshua HaMashiach in Israel in 1948 when she became a country. There's 30,000 today. The church has always been Jew and Gentile. The Catholic church thinks it's only for the Gentiles. See, the problem with Catholicism is it wants to usurp for itself the promises that God made to Israel. We try to do that in our own patriotic thinking here in America. We think that because God preserved Israel or because he made promises to her, and because he preserved her after her rebellion, that we can rebel in the exact same way, and he'll just preserve the old good United States of America. No, my friends, there's only four things on this earth that God has promised to preserve for his purposes. The creation, the word of God, the church, and the nation of Israel. I don't, count, I don't see America in there. 
Well, God was willing to spare Sodom for five righteous people. So I know there's five righteous people in this country. Well, my friends, God was willing to spare Sodom because Abraham, the friend of God, petitioned him to do so. And there weren't five righteous people there. But God delivered those that Abraham went to bat for. We're not Abraham. We're not. We can have those as a nation. We can have those Abrahamic blessings as part of the church. We're brought into that covenant, the spiritual seed of Abraham. But it doesn't mean this country is guaranteed God's deliverance. God's overthrown countries throughout history and nations and empires that had far more than five righteous people. There were a whole lot of righteous believers alive when the Roman Empire fell. That's just foolish talk by people that have taken American patriotism and mixed it up with the gospel. It's not something our founding fathers did. Five are fallen, one is ancient Rome. One is not yet come. Revised Rome. But unlike ancient Rome and the others, it's only going to rise and continue for a short time. Look, these ancient kingdoms arose and continued for hundreds of years. Far beyond what our... We talk about America this... We're only talking about 200 years of history here. No democratic republic has ever lasted as long... The Roman Republic phase of its empire didn't last as long as we have. I mean, we're destined to fall. Our founding fathers knew it was limited in time and scope. They said that this constitution, this system of government is made for a moral and righteous people. But when there's not a moral and righteous people, it won't survive. That's why we're doomed. But these imperial kingdoms lasted for centuries. And then they were absorbed into the successive world kingdoms. But this last one will rise fast and it'll be overthrown fast. You know, we look at Revelation, think, oh, it's going to take some time. You know, this stuff will be drawn out. No, 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 no. These things are going to happen very quickly. The heads of those that are left behind are going to spin when they wake up one morning. You think it's been fast that some of you folks woke up one morning some decades ago And you lived in a nation that looks very different than it does today. And you think, man, what's happened? You think that's fast. Wait till what's coming. When the Soviet Union fell in 1991, I was uh, over there three weeks before that happened. No sign of it coming whatsoever. None. No hint that the mighty USSR was going to crumble and then bang, fell apart. That's a great lesson in modern times that these things can happen very very quickly. This seventh kingdom, an imperial kingdom, it's going to come and rise up very fast, but it's not going to continue very long. A short space. One is and the other is not yet come, and when he comes, he'll continue for a short time. Very short time. It's not going to take a hundred years to build a revised Roman Empire. The Roman Empire has continued... The modern nation states of Europe that were then transplanted to the United States, that's all carved out of the Roman Empire. The empire fell and what was controlled by Rome and its culture were just the mo- what's the modern nation states today. The culture, the civilizations continued and it was transplanted here. 
America's every much as part of that wicked Babylon as even the European nation states. She is the remnants of Rome. Just like what's over in Europe to now and it will be revised. And the beast that was and is not, even he is the eighth. He's the eighth. Okay, the beast that this whore rides. She rides upon seven imperial world kingdoms that have built her up. And the beast itself is the eighth. She's the one that has proceeded from these other kingdoms and then ushers in the ultimate manifestation of this worldly imperial power. She is the eighth. The eighth beast is Antichrist from the midpoint of the tribulation until the end. And there can't be the eighth without the destruction of the whore. You see, he's a puppy here. He's a little puppy the first three and a half years. But then he proclaims himself God and all of a sudden the whore isn't needed anymore. And the Roman Catholicism, which will wield influence after the true church is gone, she'll be able to convince the world about what really happened. Aliens came and got us. Or we spontaneously combusted because evolution did its work. And she'll be all a part of bringing these people into power and then she'll have done to her what was she did to others throughout the century. Double time, coming back on you. You're going to fall in the trap you've laid. There is no Antichrist, the eighth, without the destruction of the whore. Goes on to say, we've looked at seven heads. I believe this is a reference to Rome. She sits upon seven mountains. She sits upon literal seven hills the way the city is situated geographically, but she sits upon those seven heads. This whore is upon those seven imperial kingdoms throughout history that God has used to judge Israel. Make no mistake, Egypt enslaved Israel, tried to eradicate her, and out of that God brought His people into the land of promise. We all know what Assyria tried to do to Israel in the Old Testament carried the northern kingdom away captive, tried to sack Jerusalem and God had to deliver her when Hezekiah cried out to him. We all know about Babylon, destroyed the temple and carried the Jews away captive. What did the Persians do? They tried to eradicate Israel when the, when the king was deceived by Haman in the book of Esther. The Greeks... The Greeks got in there and set up cities in Israel and brought their false idolatry in there. And then you had the, the, uh, um, uh, the, the kingdoms that split from Alexander the Great, the, the king of the south and the king of the north, fighting over the land of Israel. And then you had Antiochus Epiphanes, who was a type of Antichrist, trying to wipe out Israel out of the Greek empire. We know about the Romans. The Romans destroyed the temple in AD 70, crucified the Lord. I mean, these, these, these kingdoms have one thing in common. They all were used as instruments to judge Israel and to persecute her and to try to extinguish her, but it's never happened. The seven heads. Verse 12, And the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings. So we have seven heads and ten horns. The seven heads are seven kings. These are kings that span all of history. The ten horns are kings that come out of the seventh head. So when you see this beast in your mind, it's not ten horns spread across seven heads. I don't know how that would work. I guess 
six of them could have one horn and one could have four. I don't know. No, these, seven, these ten horns are on the seventh head of the beast. And the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings. They have received no kingdom as yet, but received powers, power as kings one hour with the beast. So these ten horns haven't received any power in John's day. They're on the seventh head, the one that has not yet come. And when they come to power, they get power at the same time as the beast. They come to political power with him at the same point in the future. These have one mind, verse 13, and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. One mind, unity, the unity that the world clamors for. And they will voluntarily submit to the beast because they're Satanists. I don't think you realize how many people in power, even in this country, are literal Satanists. They worship Satan behind closed doors. They're involved in the raping of children behind closed doors. If you don't think that stuff goes on up in Washington, you're blind. Literal Satanists. You know, I read the other day where a bunch of witches got together to, to pronounce a hex on Judge Kavanaugh. That's child's play. There are Satanists in the halls of government in this country doing far worse than that. Those witches are a joke. But Satanic power. These have one mind and shall give their power unto the beast. Now remember, when you look at Daniel's prophecies... The, the statue that Nebuchadnezzar sees has ten toes. And the proof that Daniel's statue is two forms of the same kingdom is the ten toes are referred to as these kings. So the ten toes of Daniel's statue are the ten horns here. They're kings. In the days of these kings, Daniel said, God's going to set up a kingdom. In the days of the ten toes, the iron mixed with clay, it's strong but it's weak. Look at American society today. Look at Europe. We're strong. We've got the world's best military. We've got nuclear weapons. But we're weak. We're not iron. We're iron mixed with clay. Daniel's ten toes are the ten horns here. In Daniel chapter 7, where he saw the four beasts coming out of the sea, same four Gentile kingdoms. What is described as a great statue and precious metals in Daniel chapter 2 is what the Gentile kingdoms look like to men. Precious metals. Beautiful, amazing. But those same precious metals, that same beauty in God's eyes, Daniel chapter 7, are hideous beasts that come up out of the sea. That fourth beast, Rome, in Daniel chapter 7, has ten horns. And out of those ten horns comes a little horn. And the little horn is Antichrist. Revelation 12, the dragon, Satan, has ten horns. The full-grown beast in Revelation 13, a composite beast. Okay, What's described in Revelation 13 has the characteristics of a lion a bear, and a leopard mixed together. What Daniel saw in chapter 7, that first kingdom Babylon was like a lion. Medo-Persia was like a bear 
raised up on one side with three ribs in its mouth. The Greek kingdom was a leopard. And then that fourth kingdom, he didn't know how to describe it. He said it was terrible. It was a composite. And the beast in Revelation 13 is a composite. It's birthed out of all of that world system. Ten horns. Those ten horns, those ten kings that will arise are associated in Daniel and Revelation with the one world government that will give birth to Antichrist. It's all the same. One mind and they'll give their power and strength to the beast. Guys, this is unity. We, we, we hail unity. Let's be one. There's a man-made unity that's birthed in hell. And there's a godly unity. Big difference. This is the unity of Genesis chapter 11 verse 6. Let's look at it for a moment. I usually go, we usually go to one in here. Sorry if you're sleepy. Wake up. We don't have an evening service, so hey, I'm just putting two services into one. Genesis 11, 6. I'll, I'll start with uh, verse 5. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men builded. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one. And they have all one language. And this they will begin to do. And now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. Go to let us go down. That's that triune God of the Old Testament. In the Old Testament you have the Lord. You have the word of the Lord or the angel of the Lord. And you have the spirit of the Lord. In the New Testament you've got the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's no different. Let us go down and let's confound their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad. There was a man-made unity there that was in, of one mind to build a tower unto heaven and to assert God's authority. Man-made unity. And God said, they're all one. Nothing will be restrained from them. And God confused them and scattered them. This is the unity here that puts the beast in power. That which God scattered at Babel is allowed to come together again. For as we live in a day and time where language barriers aren't a barrier anymore. I mean, you can walk down the street with Google Translate and speak something in there and translate it and play it for the next guy and he can understand. When I got, get a message from Israelis down in Waraz like I did last week, it's all in Hebrew. Now, I try not to be lazy. I try to get an understanding of what it says before I go to Google Translate. But once I do and I put copy and paste in there, it tells me exactly what they said. We're back in the days of Babel. The language is becoming less and less of a barrier. And what was scattered at Babel is coming back together. But like as God confounded it once, He'll confound it again. Not by, by changing the language, this time by sending the Messiah. Nothing will be restrained from Him. This is fleshly unity. And the appeal of this fleshly unity, we hear the cry of it today. The appeal of it is not truth. It's not God. It's not Messiah. It's ye shall be as gods. What Satan said to Adam and Eve there in the garden. Oh, well, God said, you know, God said not to eat of it. But a better translation would read, 
you'll be as gods. That's what he really meant. Well, I know the King James says this, but a better translation would render. The yea hath God said society. It's been around since the Garden of Eden. It's crept into the church and it's still here today. What God said, he said and he he meant it. God promised he'd preserve his word. He gave it to us and we can believe exactly what it says. Beware of the yea hath God society. Yea hath God said. Well, that's what he said. Because what motivates that type of unity, which has flooded our churches today, a unity that wants to partner with this wicked world, is the motivation that appealed to Eve in the garden. You'll be like him. That's Mormon Jesus. You know, Mormon Jesus is not Bible Jesus. Mormons want to be like God. I don't care how moral they are. They want to be God themselves. They believe they can be. I think, they, I think Joseph Smith said something along these lines that we are as God once was and as he is now we can become. It's not Christian. But why is it referred to as Christian? Why are Catholics referred to as Christians now? Because everything's moving back to Bible. Preparing the way for the false Messiah. Mormon Jesus and Catholic Jesus are the same. Jehovah's Witness too. They're all the same. It's Antichrist. It's the false Messiah. His spirit is alive and well. The Jesus of the Bible is not Catholic Jesus. It's not Mormon Jesus, not J.W. Jesus, not uh, Isa in the Quran. Bible Jesus. Bible Jesus was Jewish. Bible Jesus is a Jewish Messiah. Bible Jesus can save you. The others can't. This is fleshly unity. We need to be aware of it because it's all around us today. God is not, God is a loving God. He's not a tolerant God. Tolerance was the sin of the church at Pergamos. And God rebuked it. Now, I've talked a little bit about Catholicism, and I'm talking about the entity, my friends. I'm talking about the institution. I don't deny, neither do I, uh, I I don't deny that there could be genuine born-again believers tucked away in the Catholic church in different places. And the reason I say that is because the church at Thyatira in Revelation chapter 3, which represents the Roman Catholic papacy in the Middle Ages at the pinnacle of its monstrosity, there was even a remnant there. Jesus recognized a remnant there, but he said, you know, you just need to hold on to what you've got. I can't give you any more because you can't handle it. There are people out there. There's a remnant even in the most false church. So let's don't, let's be careful thinking we're the only ones with truth. God's even got a remnant in Thyatira. But the institution is an abomination. The institution's wicked. The institution will be destroyed. But we're called not to fleshly unity, but the unity of the Spirit, Paul says in Ephesians 4. The unity of the Spirit comes through peace. Unity of the faith. Right there in Ephesians 4, we've got unity of the Spirit and unity of faith. Friends, you can't have a unity of the Holy Spirit and a unity of faith and Messiah that's not rooted in God's revealed truth, which is this book. The only unity we're called to is unity around the truth. We should make no apology for it. I'm not going to make apology for the book of Leviticus. These guys out here on the street wanting to try to talk about Leviticus. I'm not going to make an apology for God who told Israel that when Sodomites came into the land, they were to execute them and purge them from the land. I'm not going to apologize for that. God told Israel, I'm giving you this law 
So the nations of the world will look at your law and see this is a great law and follow its example. Our founding fathers believed that. Well, God's got the answer for how to handle what's plaguing our country. But we don't have the government that's willing to do it. I mean, hey, should we apologize for that? I mean, is God's law righteous or is not? It can't save us, but it's righteous. King Jehoshaphat removed the Sodomites from the land and God praised him for it. Unity revealed in God's truth. It does not ignore differences. The unity of the Spirit does not ignore our differences. It confronts them and deals with them. Fleshly unity sets the differences aside. And they're unified in their hatred for God. You know, I've got a spiritual gift that it's not really listed in the Scriptures. Sean's got a couple of those. You know, there are some that are not listed in the Scriptures. I forget the word for his. I can't remember it. I've got this wonderful spiritual gift. I bring people together. I'm a unifier. I unify. In my life, I've seen bitter enemies set aside their differences and come together. Unified in their hatred for Jesse Boyd. That's why you're probably going to see Ricky and his little his bride down there working at the shelter in Barry Loche with Dylan and Sherry. They'll be working together before you know it. That's why you see John, uh, Adana and, and, uh, and Janine going on road trips together. We bring people together. Guys in my dojo, that's why you see, you know, Olin and Keith out here. They couldn't stand each other. Now they're buddies having, having martial arts work out. We bring people together. That's what we do. Never forget that. Unified in their hatred for Jesse M. Boyd. That's okay. That's okay. But we're talking about worldly unity here versus biblical unity. And the Christian church has confused the two. Confused it badly. We're not called to unity with wickedness. The Bible says how precious it is for believers to dwell together in unity. It's like the oil that flowed down Aaron's beard. John 17, what the unity that Jesus prays for in the church is in opposition to the world. It's very clear. He's praying for a unity that is in opposition for the world. And he's not praying for everybody. He's praying for those that God had given him. Of which none of them are lost except the son of perdition. Judas Iscariot. Antichrist, 2 Thessalonians, the son of perdition. This beast goes into perdition. There's a tie there. Christ has been here before. He'll come back. Antichrist has been here before. He'll come back. You know, unity, man-made unity today wants one language and one government. There's going to be one language and one government, but it ain't going to come through Europe the United States, or the United Nations. Now, in this study of Revelation, we've, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm confident we've touched on every single book of the Bible, at least twice. But sometimes I'm thinking, well, maybe not, so let's make sure. So we're going to make sure again today. Turn to Zephaniah. Zephaniah in the Old Testament. Maybe with hitting Zephaniah today, we could say we've been in every book three times. Zephaniah is an interesting little prophecy. It's one of the earliest of the prophetic books, I believe. Zechariah, Zephaniah 3, 8, 9. 
God is talking to the remnant of Israel prophetically. I believe in the days of tribulation. Therefore, wait you upon me, saith the Lord, until the day that I rise up to the prey. There's a day when he will rise up. God sees all, but he waits. But one day he'll rise up. He's stalking the prey now. But he's going to pounce, just like my kitty cat does when he sees a, a mouse or sees the other cat. He stops what he's doing and starts stalking. I will rise up to the prey, for my determination is to gather the nations that I may assemble the kingdoms to pour upon them mine indignation. Guys, everything we see in Revelation 17 is God's purpose to gather the nations to pour out His judgment. Even all my fierce anger for all the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. That's the God we worship. That's not the God almost all of those people pronouncing His name on the streets last night believe. We're following a God that's going to devour the earth with the fire of His jealousy. And then I will turn the people to a pure language that they may all call upon the name of the Lord and to serve Him with one consent. That's the unity we're called to. There's coming a day when there'll be a pure language in Jesus' kingdom and we'll all follow God with one consent. But until there's a Messiah who takes over, we can't have that unity. The only thing man-made unity has ever produced in, in the history of the world is concentration camps, mass graves, and, and, blood, and bloody coups. That's all it produces. But we need a Messiah. That's what we need. We don't need MAGA. We don't need Brett Kavanaugh. We don't need a red wave. We need a Messiah. And maybe Trump will understand that if enough people put their hands on him in the Oval Office and pray for him like that pastor did yesterday. It says here that, just give me a few more minutes. It says here that these will have one mind and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. So there's ten kings that arise. I believe this is some kind of a European federation. It may or may not involve the United States. I'm not claiming specific details. There's no question that the European Union is based upon the old Roman Empire. There's no question of that. you got uh, the UK trying to get out of it and all this stuff. But there's a European Commonwealth even now. Where does the United States play? It's all part of that. It just came over the ocean. But, I mean, all it's going to take to uh, finish off the United States, in my opinion, is a rapture. That'll finish us off. There's still enough true believers in this country. That will cause a major... You know, you can be in a country where there's only a few believers and Christ raptures the church and ain't nothing going to change. They might have a, a, a donkey suddenly not have a driver or there might be a cart that runs into a tree. But here, can you imagine the chaos that would follow if Christ just raptured his church in the middle of the day somewhere? I mean, that'll probably finish off the United States. I don't know. But Daniel sheds a little bit of light on what this means. What, what, what it, the details about how these give their power and strength to the beast. Turn to Daniel chapter 7 for a minute. Daniel chapter 7. Verse 8. 
I'll look at verse 7. I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, and strong exceedingly, and it had great iron teeth. Now, how do we know this is Rome? Daniel didn't know this was Rome in his day, but we know when we read on to verse to chapter 9, and we're talked about the people of the prince that would come would destroy the temple. Well, we know that's the Romans. So we know it's, it's Rome here. Exceeding dreadful and terrible and strong, it had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped the residue with the feet of it, and it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. This fourth beast was Rome. The Roman Empire was truly diverse from all the preceding imperial empires, and it absorbed them all. But it's got two phases. Daniel sees one because he's speaking concerning Israel. And so the church age is that great valley between two mountains, and he's looking across. He sees one mountain. He's not concerned with the church age. John is. And so you have two phases. It had ten horns, which is the second phase. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up from among them another little horn. That's the beast. The little horn's that puppy. He's the eighth before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. And then in verse 24, And the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise, and another shall rise after them, and he shall be diverse from the first, and he shall subdue three kings. Guys, John and Daniel are writing the same thing. John's just giving a little commentary. The Holy Spirit can write a commentary on his own words if he wants to. We better be careful when we're writing a commentary on his words. New Testament is the Holy Spirit's commentary on the Old Testament. So, these kings that give their power unto the beast, somehow it comes to this when three of these kings are subdued and the rest capitulate. So it involves subduing three of them and then everybody falls in line. Everybody falls in line. In a society built on mass hysteria, you'd be surprised how many will fall in line. All these patriots out here that talk about, I'll never give up my guns. Uh, You'd be surprised how many of these big talkers will give up everything when, when, when hysteria causes people to fall right in line. I don't have faith in the American people. The the people that brought this country independence and freedom were not as other men. We're not like that. We're not like that. So somehow there'll be three of these kings subdued and then everybody will fall in the line and they'll have one mind and one power, that same unity that was back at the Tower of Babel. Verse 14, and maybe I'll try to end here. Then shall, These shall make war with the Lamb. And the Lamb shall overcome them, for He is the Lord of lords and King of kings, and they that are with Him. Pray to sinner's prayer. Went to church. No. They are called, they are chosen, and faithful. War with the Lamb. We see this in the tribulation. Revelation 7. The Jewish eyewitnesses. I mean, the Jewish witnesses who... Preached the last great revival and John sees an innumerable company of Gentiles who are then martyred. Not the harvest. The harvest is the rapture, the gleanings. 
We see it in Revelation 12 when the dragon pursues the woman in the wilderness and tries to extinguish her. Revelation 13 where men are required to have a mark and those that won't pay for it with their lives. We see the innumerable company of martyrs in heaven, the, the, the tribulation saints, who are butchered and slaughtered. These make war with the Lamb. They try to eradicate what God loves. They can't go after the church in the tribulation. All they can do is blaspheme those that dwell in heaven. You see, the beast blasphemes the Lamb and he blasphemes those that dwell in heaven. It's the same word Jesus uses in John when he talks about many mansions. See, he can't touch us. In a tribulation, they can't touch us. They can just blaspheme us because we're in heaven. But then they go after the remnant of the seed, which is Israel and the tribulation saints. Some people say, well, if I'm not right and I don't survive the rapture, I'll believe in the tribulation. Well, no, you won't. God will send you a spirit of delusion. You won't believe. But there's a lot of people out here that never heard the true gospel, and they will. They, they are the fruit of the last great awakening. The Jewish people started the Great Commission. They're going to finish it. War with the land. Satan hates the Messiah, hates the church, hates Israel. The beast will make war with the lamb and actually think he can overcome. But the lamb is Lord of lords and king of kings. God told Israel that he was a king of kings and a lord of lords in Deuteronomy. Daniel made sure that Nebuchadnezzar knew that Messiah is a king of kings and lord of lords. Timothy said, Paul writes to Timothy, the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords. That's who we serve. Revelation chapter 1. John is writing to the seven churches from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth. Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. And hath made us kings and priests unto his father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I don't care what they say. Trump's my president, but Jesus Christ is my king. Behold, he cometh with clouds. And every eye shall see him, even the nation that pierced him. And all the kindreds of the earth will rejoice. Oh, no. They'll wail because of him. Jesus Christ is coming back soon. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. And boy, is he angry. He's not coming to take sides. He's coming to take over. They'll make war with the Lamb... But the Lamb in righteousness does judge and make war. We want to talk about gentle Jesus, meek and mild. But it says when He comes, we're going to see in chapter 19, in righteousness, He wages war. And what's the name carved on His thigh? The King of kings and Lord of lords. But look what it says here. These shall make war with the Lamb. The Lamb will overcome them. He's going to overcome the beast. In history, you've got two people that were transported directly from this life into heaven. Who were they? Enoch and Elijah. Well, you've also got two people that are going to be transported. They're going to be transported alive directly into the lake of fire, not hell, 
but the lake of fire. Hell's the county jail. If you're in hell, you hadn't even been judged yet. You're awaiting judgment. The people that woke up in hell, John McCain's in hell, and he doesn't even really know what's going on. He hadn't been judged yet. He's just begging. He can't beg Father Abraham across the chasm like, like the rich man did because paradise has been emptied out. Jesus Christ led captivity captive after that sacrifice was paid. So he doesn't even have anybody to cry out to. His service in a POW camp can't help him. He's, he's having to sit around and ask the guys in Vietnam that imprisoned him what the heck's going on. Hadn't even been judged yet. But death and hell will be judged and cast into the lake of fire. That's the state pen. But there's only two that have gone directly to heaven. And there are two that will go alive straight to the lake of fire. They're going to skip hell altogether. And that's the beast, the antichrist, and the false prophet. So those that try to overcome, he's just going to pick them up and toss them. And go read Zechariah 14, what happens to the, the armies that stand against Christ. You remember that old movie, Indiana Jones and uh, the Raiders of the Lost Ark? You know, there's a lot of biblical allusion in there. You remember when they opened up the ark? What happened to those Nazis? There's one guy, the guy that the, the creepy looking guy with the glasses. You remember what happened to him? His face literally melted and his eyes popped out of his socket and his mouth, his tongue consumed. Well, they didn't just make that up. They got that out of the Bible. This is the plague that will plague those that are standing against Christ when he returns. Zechariah says their flesh is just going to consume right off their bones and their eyes and their tongue, their eyes are going to pop out of their sockets and their tongue's just going to waste away. That's what's going to happen. There won't even be a fight. But when Messiah comes, he's got those that are with him. And they that are with him, the armies of heaven that come with him are not angels, it's the saints. We're going to see in chapter 19 that they're clothed in linen, white and clean. And that's the righteousness of the saints. Not only do we get to see him take over, we get to help him. Last night, we can't get in the flesh and fight. But one day, we can fight without being in the flesh. We'll be in the spirit. We won't need to do much, but we can cheer. They that are with him, with him when he overcomes these ten kings and the beast. Guys, Moses saw this. Jude, I mean, Enoch saw this scene that's, that's introduced here and described in Revelation 19. They saw it. When Moses sang to Israel and warned her, he looked into the future. In Deuteronomy chapter 33, I'm almost done. Be patient. Matthew's gone to almost 130 uh, before. So you can't, don't get mad at me. Don't blame me. Can't blame it on me. Deuteronomy 33, 2. And he said, The Lord came from Sinai and rose up from Seir unto them. He shined forth from Mount Paran and he came with ten thousands of his saints. From his white right hand went a fiery law. We know what that is. It's a sword. Word of God. Moses saw it. Enoch saw it. In Jude it says, As Enoch, the seventh from Adam. You know all these people that want to argue for an old earth, they want to say there's gaps in the genealogy. Well, Jude says that Enoch was the seventh from Adam, which means there can't be a gap there. So don't say you believe the Bible and you believe the earth is countless billions of years old, which flies in the face of observable evidence. And Enoch, Enoch the seventh from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment. His bride comes with him. That's us. 
Armies in Heaven, chapter 19, verse 14. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Guys, just a few verses earlier, I mean, in, ch- in chapter 19 and verse 8, it said, And to her the bride was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. That's us. We ride with the king. That's us. We get to see the vengeance. And we get to wash our feet in the blood of the wicked. Psalm 58 says the righteous will see the vengeance. They'll wash their feet in the blood of the wicked. And that will be easy to do because the blood's going to flow to the horse's bridles. Blood's going to flow. There will be blood. And we get to wash our feet in it. So that a man may say there is a reward for the righteous. There is a God that judges in the earth. We're not called to fight. The day will come for that. There's a time... To kill, Solomon says in in Ecclesiastes. There's a time to heal, a time to kill, a time to plant, a time to scatter, a time to cast, to gather stones, a time to cast them down. Today's a time to heal. To wield the healing power of the gospel, but there's going to come a time to kill. And that's why I told that boy last night that got in my face and said, go ahead, hit me, hit me. I said, sir, I don't start fights, I just finish them. I don't start them, I finish them. I'm not here to fight. But if you think I'm going to sit here and let you harass these elderly men and put your hand on them, you've got another thing coming. I'll use deadly force if I have to. Then he pulls his shirt up and shows a gun. And I said, sir, I promise you I can get to mine faster than you can get to yours. Don't make me do it. We're not here to kill. We're here to heal. But don't you think we're going to sit by and let you harm innocent people? We don't start fights. We're not called to take over the world. We finish them if we have to on behalf of our women and children. But the day's coming when we get to be part of that. Who? Those of us that are with Him, we are what we're called. Don't forget that. You don't come to Christ on your own terms. You don't come to God because you decided to. You're called. And the Bible says we're called from the foundation of the world. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father. That means set apart, preserved in Jesus Christ. Jesus preserves the church, just like creation, the Word of God, and the nation of Israel. Preserved in Jesus Christ and called. If you're saved, you've been called. Called, chosen. That's a word people don't like to read. It's there in the Bible. Does that mean I'm a five-point Calvinist? No, I don't associate my theology with a a dead man. Just like in martial arts, we don't bow to dead men in a picture on the wall. You know, we might have a picture in our dojo of our old sensei who's long gone, just like we'd have a picture of family members that die, but we don't bow to it. We don't talk to it. They're dead. What was I trying to say, the world was a point I was trying to make. We don't bow to dead men. We don't, we, don't, we don't characterize our theology by dead men. Men that were used of God. You know, all these people that parade themselves as Calvinists, they, they, don't, they, they forget the major thing that Calvin was used by God to do. And that was to preserve His Word. 
Geneva was a haven for the Word of God to be printed and preserved and people just don't even think about it. They don't even use Reformation Bibles and they throw Calvin's name around. Calvin would laugh at what they're carrying in their hand, calling it a Bible. But I mean, if you're going to call yourself a Calvinist, you better, you know, are you, know, are you teaching that skirts need to be a certain length or you need to be banished from the city? I mean, that's the kind of stuff that went on. I mean, don't, don't, don't define your theology by man. That's foolish. Don't define your theology by me. Search the scriptures to see if what you're hearing is true. People don't like that word chosen, but that's what the Bible says. Predestinate, it says. I mean, more important, the important point is if you've been justified, you've been predestined to be sanctified. If you've been saved, you've been predestined to bear fruit. So if you're not bearing fruit, friend, well, the proof's in the pudding. Chosen. Jesus said many are called, but few are chosen. Many are called, but few are chosen. The saints here are called and chosen. There's a few of us, but we're still around. And make, let's don't make the mistake, friends, of thinking we're the only church that's got the answers. We don't. That's foolish thinking. I've seen people get into that mindset, well, everybody's wrong and we're right. We believe what we believe and we believe it strongly, but we need to stay teachable. We need to realize that God doesn't need us to accomplish His purposes. He's got a remnant, even in the darkest places. The book of 1 John was written to all Christians. 2 John was written to remnant church bodies. And 3 John was written to remnant believers within corrupt church bodies. If you don't think there can be remnant believers in even the most corrupt church bodies, then throw the epistle of 3 John in the trash can like a lot of people in the early church wanted to do. Just throw it in the trash can because that's what it's there to show us. There are remnant bodies and there are corrupt bodies with remnant believers. It's always been that way. It still is today. Called, chosen, and faithful. You know what's funny about faithfulness? The faithfulness doesn't come from within us. It's automatic, but it comes from God. Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. That's King's English. Not faith in... You don't live by your faith in the Son of God. You live by the faith of the Son of God. You're faithful because He's faithful. Praise God, it says there in Timothy that uh, if we suffer, we shall also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He will also deny us. If we believe not, yet He abideth faithful. He cannot deny himself. Friends, in those times when you doubt and you question your beliefs, he abides faithful. We're faithful because he's faithful. And you know what? Those that are called, chosen, and faithful, you know what they're going to do? They're going to endure to the end. All these people out here that used to be so godly, they used to be so bold, they used to sing and worship Christ, but now they don't anymore. Well, they... They've told us who they are. We don't need to judge them. I was telling the guy last night, I, I, I don't need to judge you. You've already betrayed yourself. I'm just making an observation. You're, you're condemned by the words that just came out of your mouth. I don't have to judge you. And I know people, you know, even in my own family, who their entire life took a stand, 
took a stand. And then one little thing happened, and they forsook all of it. Now their theology is completely changed. How many so-called Christian families in this, church, in this country today, for the most part of their, the greater part of their lives, understood what's so clear in the Bible concerning homosexuality? But then one of their kids or their cousins or their grandkids comes out gay. And now all of a sudden the Bible doesn't mean that anymore. It means something else. These aren't those that endure to the end. These aren't those that are called chosen and faithful. God gave us a measuring stick to judge with. And it's called fruits. Thankfully God can see the heart. But we've been given a measuring stick. It's called their fruits. By their fruits you shall know them. And by their fruits we determine whether or not we can fellowship them with them in our churches. Because if they're in these doors, if you're in the church, my friend, we're to judge one another. Amen. When you're put out there, we leave you to God to judge. But those that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. And oh my goodness, it's, it's uh, 1.15. But we're, we don't get hung up on that like, like uh, churchianity. And uh, I'm just going to stop there. I wanted to finish the chapter, uh, but what we've got left is we're just going to look at the waters. We're going to look at uh, uh, the ten horns and what they're going to do to this whore. And then we're going to see the woman in her final portrayal. Let me just put it this way. What Rome has done to so many others, one day will be done to her. And that's what the wicked do. You know, all these wicked that are unified today... When, when they get power, they're going to turn on each other. And all these mobs out here, j'accuse, j'accuse, I accuse you. And an accusation makes you guilty. These people crawling and clamoring on the doors of the Supreme Court. You see a, a mob inside the Senate and uh, the Capitol building clawing at the doors and policemen standing there and do nothing. You actually think this country's not already under God's judgment? But they're going to have it come back on them. Just like the French Revolution, the ones that called for the guillotine ended up on the guillotine. Go study Nazi Germany. Go look at the brown shirts that Hitler used to interrogate all the people. The organized mobs, the Soros mobs are nothing new. Hitler had them. Called the brown shirts. And what was one of the first things the Nazis did when they got power? The night of the long knives. All of those mobs that were used by them to get into power, they executed. Ernst Rome was, was the head of the brown shirts. A personal friend of Hitler. That didn't stop Hitler from knocking him off. That's what wickedness does. So the very people that the false religious system that's propped up are going to turn on her and they're not going to just put a bullet between her eyes. They're going to strip her naked. They're going to burn her and make a public spectacle out of her. That's what's coming. But these things are revealed to us so that we can take comfort in knowing that the end has been written. The end has been written. These things are to fulfill God's will. And as Christians, we're not looking for Antichrist. We know His Spirit is around. We need to know who Antichrist is so we can recognize His Spirit. Because it's deceiving people left and right. But we're not looking for the rise of Antichrist. We're not looking for a Jewish temple. We know these things will come. I'm not giving money to Israel to build a temple because that's what Antichrist... That's Antichrist's temple. God never, God never ordered Israel to build the temple that John sees in Revelation 11. That's a temple for Antichrist. She was told to build a temple in Solomon's day. She was told to rebuild it and there'll be one in Messiah's day. But this crap that they're pushing for now... 
we rejoice because we know the end is near and God's keeping His Word, but it's not. The tribulation serves two purposes, and we would learn well today prior to the rapture. It serves two purposes. Number one, for God to pour out His wrath upon the wicked of this world, and number two, to wake up the people of Israel. That's what the purpose is. But we're called now to announce these things. Because there's still a time to escape that for both Jew and Gentile. And when we have things in our lives, friends, where people, we pray for people, believers, and they they endure for a time and they get better and then they get sick and they die. Remember, when a believer dies, God is rescuing them from what's coming. If there is no rapture of the living church, then that means God... What God has done for so many believers in history, He's not going to do for us. Rescue them. Isaiah said, when the righteous perish, have you not thought that they're being liberated from evil days to come? So whether we live or die, we can praise God that His liberation is coming. But until it does, we need to be sounding the warning. We need to be blowing the trumpet to both Jew and Gentile. So we'll stop there today and we'll resume. Uh, when, if I go on the road, it'll be some time. Who's preaching after today? Where are, we, where are you preaching? Second Thessalonians. Second Thessalonians. You guys are going to get in. You started with the book of Acts and you've gotten all the way up through First Thessalonians. We've been doing a little revelation as well. So soon, hopefully, we will have gone through every book of the New Testament. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word, which never returns void. Lord, it's sure. It's refined as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. We confess that we can't know all details. And what we think might be may not be. But when it's all said and done, based on all those prophecies that have already been fulfilled, we know that what you say will be fulfilled to the letter. Quite literally, every detail and its fulfillment will be a stumbling block to the wicked. Thank you for giving us eyes to see through the Holy Spirit and ears to hear. I pray for those that had no ears to hear last night that you'd open their ears, Lord. Bless the food you've provided. May it give us strength. And uh, bless our fellowship, Lord. We need fellowship. We need fellowship in these days, Lord. We can't, we can't sit in fellowship and not go to the world and, take, and shine a light on the lost, and neither can we shine a light on the lost and not have fellowship. We need, we need to do both. The fellowship strengthens us to go into the world. We can't get comfortable here in the walls of this church either. We need to go out. So as we make plans to prepare and do some of these things, I pray for your blessing and your mercy. Thank you, Lord, that in Jesus we are called, chosen, and faithful, not, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to your mercy. If there's any in here today that have not uh, tasted of that heavenly gift, which is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, who was crucified, he was buried according to the Scriptures, and on the third day he rose again. I pray they would find it, Lord, that you would open their eyes and save them. A real salvation that endures to the end. Help us to endure, Lord. Help us to endure and to do what Obama mocked, cling to our Bibles, cling to our Bibles. That's all we've got. (laughs) As Andrew Jackson said, it's a rock upon which this republic rests and that foundation's been kicked out. Lord, let us cling to them. We need it more than food. 
We can't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. All these things I ask in the name of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah of Israel, and the Savior of the world. In Jesus' name, amen.